Before we start this podcast, we'd just like to give a shout out to our sponsors, Amphibipod and Colourful Cresties. They make some amazing products from hides, bowls, vines and other awesome products that enrich the lives of your reptiles. Please do check them out. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Herping Hour podcast. So today we're excited to be welcoming Tom from Exotics Keeper magazine and chatting to him about how to keep the keen herp enthusiasts informed. Yeah, so thank you for having me on the podcast, guys. Thank you for joining. No, it's exciting. Yeah, it's really good. We'll kick it off with, if you tell us a bit about yourself and what got you started on your journey with reptiles and exotics and, you know, do you have any exotics or animal-related qualifications, you know, that kind of thing, just just to get to know yeah. you a bit, really. Yeah, sure. So um, I've always been into reptiles and amphibians, I guess, since I was like a kid. Um, I grew up around sort of a lot of parrots. My dad, my um, granddad was a parrot breeder. So I've always been into like animals and stuff. Had my first leopard gecko when I was 10 years old. So that was for my 10th birthday. And then, yeah, sort of when it just went from there, I ended up going down a sort of like media route, I guess. I went to uni and studied English and media and went into journalism become like a writer for a few regional newspapers and that sort of thing and then sort of went traveling and started going back to my to my roots I guess in sort of reptiles and amphibians and that so you know I've kept kept a few things kept axolotls and and dart frogs and stuff but really it was it was the the traveling side of things that sort of put me on on this path Mm. so I started off sort of traveling around sort of Southeast Asia, went to Malaysia for for a bit, Thailand, and then just started like documenting my experiences with reptiles and amphibians. So started blogging and that kind of thing, and then come back for a little while and then found myself wanting to sort of travel to Komodo. That was always like a bit of a lifelong ambition for me. So went to Indonesia for a little while, went to, obviously went to Komodo and started writing like a blog series of, you know, 48 hours in x y or z different national parks sort of documenting which species i'd found and it was something that i hadn't seen before do you know what i mean like there wasn't really a guide for that there was there's loads of travel guides but there wasn't really like a reptile or amphibian Mm. or whatever sort of like advice to go out and see these animals so i started doing that then lived in australia for like a a year met a few sort of herpetologists and zoologists and got on board with a few sort of phd research projects so working with snake neck turtles and you know going out looking for thorny devils and and shingleback skinks and that sort of thing and then yeah just sort of documenting everything uh, along the way you know some of the species that obviously when I grew up I was seeing you know white tree frogs and obviously bearded dragons and things like that that were all in captivity and then sort of see them in their wild habitat I thought you know start start documenting start blogging start writing these things up and yeah it sort of just spiraled from there I guess. <laughs> See, that's cool, that, because when you see them in captivity compared to their wild counterparts, there's a massive difference in, like, the way they look and present and behave as well, isn't there? Because, obviously, dragons, for example, they're a lot bigger in captivity with the feeding regime than you would find in the wild. So that's cool, Mm. that. That's, yeah. I'm so jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was was good, and it it, it prepared me. You know, at the time, I was writing for myself more than anything and to to make people at home a little bit jealous I'm not gonna lie (laughs) yeah it was it was just you know I was taking photographs of these animals and stuff and and I was blown away by it but people in the hostel and stuff just thought I was mental going out looking for snakes at night and things like that like so I sounds really exciting to be honest yeah yeah a sort of a a once in a lifetime thing for a lot of people yeah Um, 
it was like I'd sort of lost track of that throughout sort of school and, and uni a little bit. Um, so it just felt nice to, I guess, like let my hair down and say, you know what, th- th- this is what I love and this is what I want to write about. And yeah, it just sort of spiraled from there and, and doing some of the field research and stuff and getting my waders on and going out and finding turtles and stuff. It was the sort of thing that I, I thought I'd signed that life away when I was younger, you know, by going down a, a, a sort of writing path rather than like a biology path. And, you know, it, it was quite nice to sort of get back in touch with that. Yeah. So was it when when you say you went, was it just you or did you have a group of friends that decided you all wanted to go or? No, it was, yeah, just me. Um, I was quite fortunate to bump into like on the Komodo trip, there was a zoologist that was that was on there and we were sort of bouncing ideas off each other and mm. Gabriel uh, is one of my friends that I met in Australia uh, he's like a herpetologist from Sao Paulo and a lot of it was just meeting people I, I hadn't met a single herpetologist in my tw- you know 20 yeah. many years of life before I'd left back in the UK and out there it was like you were bumping into so many people that you know obviously the the biodiversity and stuff over there is, is very different to here but it just seemed like a bit more of like a, a normalized thing. So it was a, a lot of it was, yeah, I guess luck and, you know, meeting the right people at the right times and, and writing it down. <laughs> so I'm guessing then that brings you to why you decided to be an editor with the EK magazine. Did you start it with the EK magazine once they started up? Because I know that you only started to publish last at the beginning of last year, I think, was it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just just wondered if it was maybe was it your idea or was it was it a friend's idea you know and then you jumped on as as the editor because of your experience with you know your traveling yeah no so the project had already started um and then they were looking for you know a journalist sort of editor to to come on board around february time and Mm -hmm. at that point i was sort of equipped with that sort of portfolio of writing from my traveling and stuff and, and it and it all worked worked out so yeah, yeah. I, you know, it was there were still a few issues in, and we're still obviously developing constantly. But um, it yeah. was quite nice to sort of jump on board with the project at that point. I, I'd actually bought the first two issues myself when <laughs> the job advertisement came up, so I was like, "Yes, get me on board." <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it it sounds like it it fits fantastically with what you want from life as well, and with your qualifications, it's just a it sounds like a dream job for you, really. Yeah, most times when you want to specialise mm-hmm. in reptiles and stuff, you do like obviously biology, you do the animal courses and stuff. When you've got the best of both worlds, there eh? you've stuck with your with your media, and then you're getting the the hip inside as well. Yeah, Brilliant. yeah, absolutely. I, I, honestly, I, when I took the job on, I I couldn't believe it. To be honest, I was um, so pleased like that that had sort of gone full circle for me. So even now you know what are the chances you know my my writing my my travel writing was very animal led but i thought there's probably more career options in in travel writing what's the chance of, of finding a magazine that's all about reptiles and amphibians yeah. and i can just you know run with it so yeah it, it's it's crazy that that come up at that time and um yeah i'm absolutely passionate about the magazine and and it's nice to see it grow as well yeah brilliant it's yeah it's fate really yeah isn't it? definitely like, together for you. it sounds really cool um so in in terms of obviously the editing side so how how difficult is it to create a magazine in terms of you know putting it together what article you want to feature in that month and and working around other people's timelines you know for the for the things that you include in it 
Uh, yeah, so there's a, a team of us, you know, there's a few of us that work together. So uh, Scott basically is content lead. So he sort of manages a lot of the um, the content and obviously our partner brands and, and advertisements and things like that. And, and we'll discuss, there's a few other you know, people in the team, um, Amy, who's a, a qualified herpetologist, and several other people that sort of get involved in planning content. So obviously, the the idea of the magazine itself is to improve welfare for, for all animals. So so we can sort of plan ahead, I guess, with certain species that are very popular. So, you know, we know that we want to cover bearded dragons, leopard geckos, king snakes eventually. Um, so we can sort of drop them in at some point. And then it's just a matter of finding the right person to talk to. Um, yeah. So those sort of features, we know what we want to get out of it. We want to tell people how they can do things, I guess, better um, and find the right researcher, the right the, the right person to interview to, to pull that together. So that's okay. But then obviously there's other things. So so news will drop, there'll be a new scientific paper come out from one of the zoos, one of the universities, and we think that's that's brilliant. We need to cover yeah. that. So then we'll have to jump on that pretty quickly. And that can be a bit of a challenge sometimes. But I guess essentially we we are a very close team and we dedicate pretty much all our time to EK and, and we try and give ourselves maybe like a month ahead to get them bits together. So, you know, I'm not really sure what, what sort of challenges we, we face there, but it's just about pulling it together and, and everyone's focused on the magazine and everyone knows what they want the magazine to, to be like. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, we're sort of constantly developing, I guess. You've just mentioned when articles do come out, you know, you've got to be quick, you've got to get on them. Yeah. But do you tend to try and actively source them yourself or do you do you also have people that, you know, make you aware of an article that's come out and maybe want you to feature it you know in the magazine yeah yeah so um sometimes a lot of the time I mean like my own sort of social media and stuff like that is just connected to to a bit of everything so I'll see things sort of pop up here and there but again if there's a research paper that comes out and somebody's seen it and they say look you know this is this is a really interesting topic then we'll cover it but predominantly we lead that conversation we'll say you know this is an interesting thing like can we get so and so on the phone to talk to us about this or you know can we interview somebody from here to talk about that you know if there's any sort of trends or or something happening in the hobby that we feel needs to be covered then we'll absolutely just go ahead and do it you know we've we've had a few people approach us for to to write features and stuff and the thing is that they're really really good but a lot of the time um it's stuff that they've been writing themselves and they've already written it. And yeah. from an editor's perspective, you sort of need to go in with, you know, almost giving them the idea of what, what we want from that um, feature. Yeah. Even though it's really good, it, it actually works out sometimes easier for us to say, can we just interview you and you tell us everything that you've already yeah. written? Yeah. And then go from that perspective, you know, because um, obviously there's word counts that we need to hit and there's you know different ways of doing things pulling photography and stuff together can sometimes be a bit of an issue and and you know if people have already read papers and stuff on on social media groups there it's we want that content to to be fresh you know yeah something new yeah i think with that though there's a lot of good groups on facebook in regards Mm. to advancing the husbandry and the science behind um heating elements and the lighting elements and everything but not everyone knows about them so when you've got like some, like a magazine like yourself that's pushing that to the forefront and you can go into a reptile shop and get it you know order it online it, it's it's reaching more people than necessarily the facebook groups would because although a lot of people want to advance the husbandry 
they aren't aware of these types of groups or all the papers that are put online and stuff and you can't you don't always know what to trust online when it comes to, to reading things because a lot of things come up as myths and yeah. stuff. so it, yeah. it's beneficial and i think it, it'll be reaching more people than just the groups and such would be well that's it i mean a lot of the people that join these groups are, are go out with the idea of I want to advance my husbandry like these are the right groups to join and this is how I want to do it and Mm. you know very eager to sort of learn whereas I guess with EK we we have got a wide sort of uh, readership I guess but Mm. um, you know somebody might be interested in one side of exotics and then then find that actually oh they've hang on a minute that you know UV is beneficial for this species as well or oh you know I didn't realize that about lighting spectrums or heating spectrum or this product or that product because they've been interested in it. it it sort of changes doesn't it you know so unless you're constantly looking for that information you know the group groups are brilliant and they have that up-to-date information and they're some of the best of the best that, that run these groups so I absolutely support them but having it in the context of you know nice pictures and stuff like that surrounding it, it yeah it's, it, it's, grateful, it's you know yeah, yeah it's a lot easier I mean I make all my own cur guides for my reptile group online Mm. Um, and I try and do all my own diagrams and such because, again, some people can find it easier to digest if they can visually see uh, an image, you know, of, of what the setup needs to look like. And, I'm, you know, we always promote UVB because, again, I know there's not a lot of science behind it, you know, to say, yes, this definitely needs to be. Um, but we are on the side of, you know, it is needed rather than just beneficial um, so we try to put that across in everything that we write up because I do a lot of UVB testing, as you as you know yourself. You've seen some of the stuff that I put out with, you know, trying to advance racking systems. Um, yeah. But again, like I said, racking systems they'll they'll always be a part of the hobby. It's just you know we can advance and we can try and push people in a better direction, you know, than what there is now. So yeah, I do do agree that with the likes of the magazine, it's it's beneficial for to you to visually see um, what yeah. you put out there alongside what you write up. Yeah, absolutely, and it is like a bit of a rabbit hole when you go down any of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. everything's got a relationship with something else. You know, yeah. with, with herbs culture, you it, you can explain one side of things, and it still leaves other things to be you know to talk about. So with yeah. like a subscription service, if somebody knows. That, you know one issue they're talking about say uv and then the following one they we, we talk about supplementation mm-hmm. then they get that relationship probably yeah, easier the correlation. Group. yeah and then you know you can talk about heating and temperatures and stuff and what that means for your animal and then yeah. hopefully over time that that then builds up that knowledge base the majority of the magazine itself is is finding the expert who's got that knowledge that yeah that knowledge and that sort of research and that scientific backing to turn around and say well this is what i think this is how i've been doing it and um, you know having a few different perspectives but predominantly if somebody's doing something well and somebody and and seems like it's scientifically backed then Mm -hmm. it's more about getting their voice out there than it is the uk voice yeah to put it all into perspective you know to better better voice it for people to understand Mm -hmm. yeah I get that, yeah. We know you release a new magazine each month yeah, and it's always packed yeah. with like the latest studies, information. Is it time-consuming, bearing in mind all that, all those different factors? Because obviously you don't just bring out a magazine dedicated to, say, like one species. There's all different things that you factored into it to make it... It'll appeal to someone who's 
interested in anything really it isn't it's not just like species specific does it make it more time consuming <laughs> yes like <laughs> absolutely yes yeah it's um it, as I say you know it is a full-time job it is out of hours interviews if I'm interviewing people in different time zones there's that you know I'll jump onto webinars and stuff out of hours because I just need to build that knowledge base and contact base there's you know several conferences and stuff that we this year has been virtual but that would usually be you know in person and, and if we're out filming and things as well that that's like a over a 24-hour period we'll have to you know drive up somewhere and film so I I love it. Um, it's certainly no complaints to it, but but it is time consuming. Yeah, and yeah. as I say, with the getting the right people on board to to tell us their opinions, you know, there are certain elements. When it comes to reptiles and amphibians, I would say that I'm very you know knowledgeable myself. Um, mm -hmm. Invertebrates and things like that. There, there are aspects of exotics keeping where I'm not an expert, so I need to go out and say, you know, we, we just have a read through this to to the people that that, that really are experts, and and I go to. You know, invert shows and things like that and stuff that is maybe slightly out of the reptile amphibian sphere to, to develop that knowledge and to speak to people and to develop them sort of contact bases so yeah there is an element of you know it, it takes up more time to cover more taxa but at the same time i've got no complaints like i love it you know anything that i'm i i, I feel like i'm learning along the way as well mm. so um, yeah it's brilliant i was just gonna say then because i'm assuming every day is a learning day because you're covering that many topics yeah. it would seem like it's going faster yeah. that's yeah. Why I, I, that's probably how it feels for me like it goes faster because every day is a learning day and it's something new and exciting and fresh each time which is yeah. so fun so fun yeah, it sounds like such a good job yeah. like, <laughs> it's amazing. It's just, you know so I know, that, I, I know that you have to get obviously back in from certain specialists in certain articles but do do you have the actual magazines peer-reviewed and cross-referenced you know before released by anybody specific that maybe hasn't give you an article but knows about a lot of the stuff that's in in the magazine and would peer-review peer it for you uh yeah so it's more it's more like a case by case thing we don't necessarily have like a process of somebody else having the final say necessarily but at the same time you know we're talking about these groups and stuff if you look at you know my phone book and that sort of thing all your your big big brands the big names in a lot of the groups as well as people on the team who are you know absolutely qualified to talk about these things the product development guys who do endless testing for pretty much every product on the market you know they're all I'm talking to these guys like every week you know at least every week so mm -hmm. The peer review side of things is more a matter of if there's something that seems like it could be contentious or it could be, you know, or it needs backing. Obviously, I'll run it past past somebody and say, you know, what do you think of this? Even full features. If I'm going to do a feature on lighting, for example, then there's certain people in the industry that I'd say, yeah, will, will you have a look at that? But at the same time, yeah, the actual process itself is largely done in-house. And then anyone that sort of contributed to the magazine. So if there's um, two or three people that I've interviewed throughout, I'll send that feature to them and just say, I, you know, are you happy with what you've said, first and foremost, because we're, we're doing these interviews and, you know, it all gets taken down on dictaphone and stuff, but people can sometimes stumble over their words or, or maybe mean something else. So they, they'll have the opportunity to uh, to sort of change things and stuff so that everything is as concise and as 
factual and as correct as, as it can possibly be. We will recommend certain products and certain brands that we think are, are really good, but we, you know, try to avoid that if we're going down, you know, certain routes and, and natural routes and sort of more explain the spectrum and say, you know, this brand does a good job of that or whatever. But um, there's so much to play with. Like you say, like there's actually, it's a really exciting time to be in the hobby. You can go into a reptile yeah. shop and you can really pull together loads of different products and, you know, different brands coming out with different things and 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 sort of not necessarily play with it, but you can facilitate, doesn't matter sort of how big your enclosure is, you can facilitate a really, really good setup with different um, mm. products and stuff. Whereas before you were sort of, if you were going down the heat mat route, yeah. you'd want a, you'd probably have a smaller mm. viv because you'd want a hot yeah. side, a cold side and it actually pretty pretty boring you know and i think about how i was keeping leo mm. my, my leopard gecko you know oh god like almost 17 years ago <laughs> like very different to how i set up a, a, a leopard gecko vivarium today and actually i think it's probably more fun that you've got all these products and you've got all these brands and stuff there that you can experiment with and play with and yeah i think it's yeah an exciting time to to be in the hobby definitely definitely yeah yeah because i know I know it's being looked at with the, you know, the percentages that you get from the big lighting groups on the outputs of different heating and lighting mm. products and yeah. how much they do replicate the IRA, B and C. It's it, it said that it's being looked into that eventually we could potentially use multiple heat sources that would come together and give a better output of what the sun really mm. offers. So, I mean, as an example, it, you know, this this isn't this isn't a yes, do this. But as an just as an example, you could maybe have say a Baskin bulb and a Chi or a DHP, and when put together at certain levels and times, it would mimic better the sun and and give off you know the different different IRA, B and Cs yeah. at yeah. a better capacity to what there is now we're just using one if that makes yes. sense so there's yeah. a there's a lot of there's a lot of research now going into because obviously we don't have it in just one product just yet i'm confident in the future we really will because we've already got there a bit with the t5 mm. bulbs but for the heat element it's just really interesting that you know how we can work together with you you know your LED lights for your visual you know for your better visual cone receptors. You've got your UVB and then you've got your heating element as well. So in the future, the light Leo days will have that information there to suggest that if you put X, Y, and Z together, this will make an even better output than what we've got available to us today. You know until maybe one product is available that's, you know, more powerful than a halogen, yeah. you know, if you're looking at for a comparison. Yeah, to, and I think if you've got that one fixture that somebody can say, right, I've just got to put this in my viv and then maybe a thermostat mm -hmm. or, or some kind of, I don't know, many years in the future, some kind of dial that does everything and it does it and you, you just set what times you want it and you know that makes things a lot easier it's yeah. but it's like you know the uvb leds now are, are brilliant like to be able yeah. to say right i'm good i want some leds because i want to grow plants and your uvb is there already providing that somebody understands distances and and you know going through mesh or whatever mm. however they they're using it as long as they implement it correctly that is brilliant you know i i i art frogs myself yeah. and yeah, i just think that's that is pretty groundbreaking you know so if we can combine a, you know if there's a heating unit that does a similar thing we can't be that far yeah. away from uh from having 
the, the no. canopy that, that does everything, you know, and does it does it well, you know. Yeah, yeah. exciting. It it's, is. It's exciting what we can expect from the next few years. I, I I do genuinely believe that we'll get there with with regards to trying to mimic as much of the sun as what we possibly can inside, you know, one enclosure. Yeah. So yeah. Quite cool. It is because when you look at the lifespans of these animals, and the more technologies progress, the more re- we've realised. Hang on, they we should be yeah. We, they should have been living longer than they initially mm. were. So mm. from like the dragon that was like up to ten years is now like what up to sixteen or seventeen years. Yeah. And it's like to me that's a, that's that's fantastic because you, not only are you bettering their lives, but you are putting forward that like look, this is how it should be done, how it can be done. It doesn't have to be necessarily you know put them in a box bit of a light leave them to yeah. it yeah uh, it's a good parameter for you know people who say oh well i've kept my animal alive for x amount of years and it's like well that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing the best you can like just because it's alive some animals are really really hardy you know so they provided yeah. that you meet some basic criteria then great but if we can see that overall the hobby is prolonging these lives and they're happier and healthier and, and more active and and you know breeding more regularly or, or, or whatever it is then that's a better way of judging you know the success of the hobby i guess definitely because it, it's it's less of the surviving mode now more of the thriving with a lot of the species kept in captivity yeah. And that's brilliant, especially if you see somebody new come into the hobby and they're asking all the right questions and yeah. stuff. And it's like, I really want this animal to do its best. So you can see they've spent hundreds of pounds on trying to have this perfect little enclosure. To me, especially when it's a child, because a lot of kids want a pet yeah. now, don't they? Mm-hmm. And if someone's put hours of research in and this mm-hmm. kid's like, what do you think of this? It's uplifting to me because that is the future of the hobby. Yeah, And they're, yeah. they're really pushing for the best at that age. And that is fantastic. Yeah, that, that is. We should be helping them, yeah. helping them do better instead of tearing them down. Like just, yeah. just because they're a child doesn't mean that you know they're less capable of such things. You know, a bit of education goes a long way, and it can yeah. help them in the future. With regards to the magazine, how difficult was it to get it into you know shops and online reptile retailers? So. It was actually, I mean, we, we couldn't do it without Peregrine Live Foods, which is our distributor. So um, they essentially, yeah, they're a wholesaler. Uh, I don't know how aware you are of them. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. We yeah, yeah. So, um, so they've, they absolutely pushed it. And, you know, it was quite straightforward to get into some of the, the biggest shops, which was quite nice. But um the, as we sort of progress, you know, we want people to be going into their local shop and, and buying the magazine physically because it supports local shops. Then that, you know, it, we we want that. But we're also when we first launched, there wasn't a like a website that people could just subscribe through. So since we've started doing that, we've been giving people just more options to be able to get their latest copy of EK, which we think is good. But yeah, like we want. I guess people to be constantly going in and constantly subscribing so you know certain shops and stuff that that may have stocked earlier issues and don't stock it anymore or or have just jumped on board and, and started stocking ek we sort of want people to go out and say you know i really like this magazine or whatever and talk talk to your local shop like your, your local shop at the end of the day most mm-hmm. obvious that is their hub that's where they get most yeah. of the information from you know there's there's heaps of stuff online and but but nothing sort of meets up to that sort of face-to-face contact with somebody and having a bit of a chat and they'll they'll then pass that that information on to peregrine as well so we we do like encourage people to to go into the shops and talk to shops about 
what they do like, what they don't like. Equally, you know, you can get in touch with us, Facebook, um, but all our socials and yeah. stuff. But yeah, I guess for a lot of people, the online subscription is is the easiest way of, of getting the magazine and, you know, it gets delivered straight to your door. And It makes it more accessible yeah, as well. Yeah, I think that's it. It's like, you know, and you've got something to then look forward to every month rather than thinking, mm. oh, I've got to go, go, go and get this. Yeah, I've got to remember to get it before it leaves yeah. and, and faffing around like that. Some people obviously don't have time to do that, so... Yeah, I like the fact that you can order online. My bank card doesn't like the idea. <laughs> but I'm definitely going to be ordering the rest of the ones that I haven't yeah. got to fulfill my collection. <laughs> I think, I think it, it's helpful as well because obviously we're just coming round from the pandemic and although pet shops were open at reduced hours, a lot of people started shielding. Yeah. And if you yeah. couldn't get out, but you like, obviously, if you're not being able to get out more, that's giving you a little escape as well, like a magazine. Yeah. Some people, it's just a piece of paper, but to others, mm. it's an escape yeah. for a few hours, especially if you're shielding on your own and stuff. Yeah, It's nice to have that option Yeah, and there. I think people, we've had like quite a bit of good feedback from reptile enthusiasts that absolutely love the magazine, and then they give it to their kids and they love the pictures, you know, so they're like... Yeah, ticking yeah. all boxes there, yeah. yeah emily emily yeah, say, yeah. It, saying that our daughter she's like she's been hoarding them just holding them because she just she doesn't understand the words because she's only four but all the pictures she wants to know which you love them, oh. where they are where they live and stuff so because obviously she's always been around reptiles yeah. her and her yeah. sister absolutely mm. love them so now she's at the artistic age. She'll try and draw them oh. and stuff, and she'll use your book oh. as a reference to like draw a dragon, yeah, she's or a frog oh. or something. She, so she kept, um, she kept the one with crested geckos in, didn't she? Yeah, we're not allowed that one. <laughs> no, she wanted to take it to school and show all the friends <laughs> and everything. So oh, we're gonna have to do a drawing competition next, and I think. I'm really interested in whenever you do any articles about you know conservation and the breeding projects and stuff like that uh, that's what interests me quite a lot. You know, the is it the Golden Mandela yeah, frog? Yeah, that, that was quite a cool article. Yeah, was, yeah I enjoyed yeah, it. I, that was one of my favourites. To be honest, that was quite early on for me getting on board actually, and that was a scientific paper that was you sort of presented to us, and I was like, right, let's run with it. It was quite last minute as well, actually. We, we were going to to print not long after that, and I'd actually pulled one feature to go with the mantella piece because it was such a good research paper it, it ticked every box you know captive breeding you know c- captive care there, there are loads of mantella in in captivity and sort of maybe maybe some kind of hope to, to reintroduce them in the future so that was it straight on the phone chester zahu speaking to harada you know um <laughs> they emailed a few of this sort of like organizations that work with them in, in madagascar as well and yeah that I, that was yeah i was only probably in the job for about a month and definitely a highlight there yeah i i enjoyed it i really did i good. thought it was it, it was awesome because it come from chester zoo as well so you're obsessed yeah, yeah you I'm love chester zoo i really want to visit chester it zoo a- well because it's only technically down the road for us it's like yeah. oh one of the kids birthdays come up. let's go to the zoo no it's a nice sunday let's go to the zoo yeah. i don't blame you i think the closest zoo to me is london zoo quick intermission to let you know the code for some awesome discounts with our amazing sponsors amphibipod are offering five percent off orders under 20 pound with the code herpingpod5 and 10 percent off orders over 20 pound using code herpingpod10 
Colourful Cresties are 10% off orders over £15 using the code THHPODCAST10. Be sure to check them out and give them some support. They really deserve it. Do you ever experience months that, you know, could be a bit quieter on the Exotics news front? And if so, what kind of contingency plan do you have in place, you know, to pull you through that maybe quieter spell? Yeah, so the Exotics news, like specifically that, that sort of front section, that's all collated by a guy called Paul Irvin, who is the editor of Keep Contact magazine. So that's like a yeah, a monthly magazine that's really focused on Zoom news. So he does a brilliant job of that. If anything, you know, he sent when he sends through like a, the, the the news that he's put together that month. It's there's a lot. We've never had a month where we've not had enough. So like that section yeah. of things, that there's always stuff. And at the same time, I'm finding press releases and news articles and stuff coming through that I'm thinking I really want to squeeze this in somewhere, but there's just not the pages to do it. So we, we you know we do blog posts and stuff, especially when it's like current news you know there were some big-headed turtles hatched at uh, london zoo yesterday it was really interesting. yeah oh yeah I saw yeah that. so we were like you know we've got to get that out there and it's quite interesting when you see like the the national coverage as well from from different yeah. newspapers and stuff like it's all it's all positive you know we want people to be engaged with that kind of news it doesn't matter what platform it comes from mm-hmm. so yeah well we don't ever have months that are really quiet on that front yeah there's always there's always something you can slot yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if anything, not, not that yeah, yeah. It's more like finding what's sort of most relevant because our magazine covers like all taxa. It's yeah. we know that will always be something, but it's what's most relevant to our readers. What pe- what's most important as well, I guess, from a conservation perspective. Like a lot of a lot of times, I speak to conservation charities and say. What a brilliant success story. Like, oh my God, you've managed to release, you know, a thousand blue iguanas into into the wild and they've changed their their conservation status to, you know, from critically endangered to endangered or vulnerable. And you, you sort of go, Oh, brilliant. Wow, what what an optimistic story. And it's like, well, yes and no, like it doesn't mean that the problem's solved, like there's still an ongoing thing. Yeah. So if there's something that's like, yeah. yeah, the forefront of conservation news and, and stuff that we, we really should be shouting about as a positive thing but also something that people can support and help we want people to be able to do that and at the same time we're, we're starting to move towards a model now where we'll be making donations and stuff so we, we really want to be supporting we did support um, a lot of zoos at the beginning when when the magazine was first launched with with live foods and donations and stuff like yeah. that that was like our, our main goal then now we're trying to move towards being able to make little donations and stuff whenever whenever we can to support these projects uh, so over the next few months there'll be more details on on the way that that's going to go ahead but yeah if there's something that people can do that our readership can get involved and they can support that that conservation news then that mm-hmm. usually takes precedent but then at the same time the exotics news section is just lots of interesting bits to be honest in the hobby, not everyone's interested in all species, but when it comes to things like conservation and stuff, mm. I think everyone comes together yeah. for that. It's like it's a collective passion to try and save these animals and push forward. Like you know, it's wrong what's happening to them, and that, I think that's one of the things I really love about the hobby. Is I might not like this species or take an interest in a, like all species, but as soon as something comes out about like we can help them in a way, then everyone's like knitting yeah. together like a, a community, and I think that gets left out a lot. Like it's it's not brought to the forefront that actually everyone knits together to try and do what they can in their own small way to try and benefit a species or yeah and i feel like there's not quite enough conversation around 
the the relationship between you know animals in captivity whether it be zoos or private collections or, or whatever it is and and conservation efforts that happen as a result of that you know there's people will have there's a massive spectrum of different perspectives on on that topic you know some people that will say you know captive breeding is only should be a, as an absolute necessity at the very last point of conservation and others say that you know captive breeding if that enlightens people to that species and and then they want to go out and study that species well then that's absolutely got a place as well and there's and there's every sort of view in between but i think when whenever we can talk about a subject that directly says well look you know this is what we're doing with this animal in captivity and this is how it's directly being benefited in the wild like we in our latest issue we spoke to the guys at chester zoo with their komodo dragons and matt cook is really knowledgeable bloke great speech to him and and he was saying amongst everything komodo dragons to be fair like we had to snip down a few bits for the video and like obviously there's a few bits in in the in the feature as well on on training methods but he was saying the the conservation every every captive komodo dragon in the uk and i think in europe but you know don't quote me the that the, the organization that then sort of keeps them animals has to donate a, a x amount to the survival program in Komodo. So there's no, you can't argue that that is directly supporting local communities and stuff over in Indonesia and in some kind of way, as well as, you know, the toddler that goes up to the glass and says, oh my God, look at that massive lizard. Now I want to learn everything about lizards. Yeah, exactly. You know, because I was that kid at one point, you know, that was when it comes to sort of putting that information out there, I really do want to benefit the lives of, of animals. Same as everyone at EK and, and I think everyone in the hobby really wants to benefit the lives of, of animals in captivity and, and everywhere really. But that needs to start somewhere. So somebody needs to get, there yeah. needs to be that interaction with reptiles for that to be the catalyst, I guess. It's like with the Steve Irwin thing, isn't it? A lot of uh, reptile keepers absolutely love or loved mm. Steve Irwin because he brought that unknown to the TV. So we wouldn't see a crocodile or an alligator, obviously, down <laughs> our streets, but you brought it to TV and it's, you don't necessarily deal with it. It's like, wow, this is fascinating. And obviously it spins from there, mm. doesn't it? And it's like, wow, well, when you look at these, there's also this species and there's, there's this species and oh, we can work with this one. And it's, it, if when you're opening up that book, your imaginations run wild and that's what you need because one kid keeping a bearded dragon today could be advancing the science behind it yeah. tomorrow. And that's what we need, constantly need to open these minds and say, look, the world's your oyster. There's literally so many ways you can run with this. And you'll stop running in, like, hopefully stop running into the problems of, well, we're going to have to try and captively breed these because they are now being hunted or taken from the wild too much to, to sustain themselves. Yeah. yeah, It does do a lot of good. So, like, would you say, and then, like, they have to pay a donation? I didn't know that. And stuff like that should be brought to the forefront because it would ease up some of the, well, don't do this and don't do that mm. because that's a massive benefit, a huge benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely think that should be, be spoken about more because I'll see a lot, of people still have that like zoos are bad yeah that idea of like zoos are horrible they do horrible things they keep them in like tiny things and all this but i don't think people know a lot about the whole protecting a species and helping a species and they're, they're doing it for a reason and like there's there's not it's not just you know look that that's a cool gecko let's just ram it in here it's like animal could be endangered they could be doing a breeding project there's not a lot of that around and i feel like the more in the magazine that you talk about that i think that you're going to open a big yeah. link 
and probably open a lot of people's eyes to sort of change their opinion on things. And I think that would be really good for yeah, the hobby. Absolutely. Like I can't see anyone, uh, you know, there there might be out there somewhere, but I don't don't think anyone starts a zoo thinking I hate animals. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean it just doesn't it, it, there's it, it's stemmed in in the a passion and a love for it and without them kind of facilities to for for zoologists to study certain behaviors and get up close with stuff we, we wouldn't know enough to to make an impact in the wild i don't think anyway that's my own opinion and maybe i'm getting controversial now but i like i do think whether of course they absolutely have their place and and if we can highlight some of the the, the relationship between you know, captivity and saving animals in the wild, then I think that's absolutely an important thing that, that we should be shouting about. Definitely. What kind of stories do you tend to avoid or, you know, you might not be able to feature due to laws or legislations, that kind of thing? So I had a bit of a think about this one, actually. I don't think there's anything. I think everything's on the cards, as long as it's sort of rep- reported in like a like an honest and truthful way. When I was like studying for, for my degree, I was reporting from the courtroom quite a lot. And there was some really sort of touchy subjects and, and some stuff that, you know, you, you you have to learn how to report them and report them fairly and accurately. And for me to say that, obviously, this magazine is slightly different to conventional news reporting. It's not like X, Y and Z has happened. X, Y and Z said this than done it's it's a bit more to it so in terms of like legislations and stuff i guess we always work alongside like aal licensing we'd never recommend anyone do anything if anything we, we recommend that people go above and beyond what the aal licensing sort of recommends dwa species and stuff like that we've not really covered in much depth I'm not going to pass any judgment on on any of the, the DWA stuff because uh, we always think there's there's a right and a wrong way to do things, and it's not my place to say what people should or shouldn't keep. But you know, we don't necessarily shout about first time snake go out and buy a king cobra. Do you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. No, there is an element of we're talking about certain species that we have. We also haven't covered big snakes again. You know, it's, people can find that contentious. Probably majority of new keepers or our readership anyway would struggle with big snakes so so we just don't you know we don't need to talk about them we'd much rather talk about how to keep your royal python really really well than we would say building a shed in your back garden and a big you know yeah. it just it's exactly it doesn't it doesn't appeal to the demographic that we're probably targeting at the minute you know as the magazine grows and there are some absolutely incredible enclosures for big snakes that i've seen that i think are, are fantastic and We've actually got a few things planned to talk to zoos on on that front because, like we say, that there is there, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. So, but there's probably rather than stories that we avoid, more just getting our target audience sort of right, I guess. And I people yeah. that you know are absolutely equipped to sort of keep these snakes and and very knowledgeable zoological professionals. All this thing that would still find a story in our magazine interesting about conservation of another species. So yeah, there's elements that, that we probably would avoid, but but not necessarily because of laws or legislations. We obviously operate in all very legally and we, we we speak with shops and the likes of Rector as well. You know, a lot of the organisations that influence legislations and stuff, if we need any advice, we, we can pick up the phone. And so yeah, pretty much everything's on the cards. It's just, we don't have enough pages to cover it. 
as you said that there are people in the hobby who are like beacons for keeping these large species like they've gone above and beyond there's Dougie I don't know if you're aware of Dougie Smith and he posts quite a bit and he built that purpose-built outhouse yeah. for his um yeah. and it's absolutely phenomenal yeah that but was your awesome. basic keeper coming into it wouldn't understand like you are going to need an actual second house for these animals and that's yeah. like, the only way yeah. you can really feasibly keep them because as pretty as they are they're quite an advanced species to keep so as much as you may love them unless you've actively worked with them or been in for years and are willing to put that money and time in then just please don't touch them with a barge pole really <laughs> yeah. especially with like obviously the large snakes being quite a, a small area of people that that can keep them and can keep them well because they're they're big snakes and they can do some damage if, you know yeah so yeah i definitely understand why you yeah. sort of i think with something like that as well there's some absolutely brilliant rescue centers and services that do a great yeah. job and commit so much time and, and effort and resources to it that i just sort of think we would rather probably highlight that story and say you know in yeah. a roundabout way you know it then big snakes aren't for everyone than we would mm. necessarily dive straight in and say this is how you do it yeah. it's something a bit yeah. smaller a bit more manageable you, you probably could say this is how you do it because obviously it's a bit more manageable yeah, there's just yeah. ways of reporting it you know it's that fine line isn't it because if you do bring attention to these big snakes you're potentially then introducing one that's going to end up in a rescue because as much as they've read in this story they're not equipped to deal with it so it's that fine line for you isn't it like if we bring attention to it is it going to be attention to say oh and they'll stay away from it or oh well i'm going to do it yeah. anyway so it's yeah, yeah i guess they don't want to rebel against yeah it's a fine line of, think it's a, a good idea to go down the sort of rescue route with the big yeah, snakes that's a really good idea yeah. you know showing that as lovely as they are this is the reality of keeping them they they get too big for people mm. you know this rescue is is chock-a-block full they're doing everything they can so i think yeah highlighting on that side of it is probably a better way to go about large snakes yeah i think highlighting from a, a zoo perspective is a good idea because they'll yeah. always have the you know the correct amount of space and the the proper capacity for them and stuff like that so i think that's a really good idea to go from that perspective yeah, yeah. yeah i like the zoo idea as well yeah and even talking about how much it costs even yeah. you know to light you know how much it costs to feed a snake that yeah. size the aggression that some of them can have the, the cost of the enclosure you know things like that it, they're not it's not 300 pound and we're done it's 15,000 pound and you're <laughs> nearly done like <laughs> in a hobby full of myths and opposition do you ever get people contesting what you're publishing about such as they might disagree with some of the information that you're putting in the articles or is that not something that you fear interestingly no so we actually had one comment when i first started like i think it was one of the first features i'd written somebody didn't like the arachnid piece didn't really give us much information why just really sort of yeah didn't <laughs> like it and that was actually the, o the only one that we've had like a sort of complaint where somebody's actually emailed in and said oh we don't think this is right and and then that was yeah. that. They didn't really sort of divulge anything. <laughs> we haven't necessarily had anyone come back and say, I think this is wrong. And in actual fact, I think I'd feel more comfortable if we had if we did have people saying that. I don't mean, like, <laughs> if we knew that we had that relationship with with readers that that were saying like, oh, you know, here, here's my opinion on this, or here's that. Like, it would be. I think that would be quite quite interesting to see. You know, because there's got to be different opinions out yeah. there. Yeah, it, yeah. 
always, yeah. always good. You know, even at Doncaster, like the, we went to the last Doncaster and we were speaking to so many people and a lot of people were saying, yeah, absolutely love the magazine. Like, well, can you give us some feedback? Can you can you tell us something that you don't? They're like, no, yeah. no, we just really love it. And it's like, well, that's all well and good. And, and it's, it's encouraging and I'm gl- glad to hear it, you know. But it would be if we had probably more people coming back and say, oh, you know what, I, I don't agree with this or I do think that then... we can get a better probably judgment of how the hobby perceives certain things yeah obviously it's still going to be science-led obviously it's still going to be speaking to experts and and researchers and writing in a sort of similar way but it would yeah we've we've not really had anyone come back and say no i'd completely disagree challenges when editing a magazine challenges i feel feel like i've covered a few (laughs) challenges like um but yeah i I guess it's more lots of little ones you know the, the the magazine is it's it's like it, it was a little startup a year ago it wasn't it's not something and it's a niche hobby and it's one of them things that we're all sort of getting it right so you know even if you look at some of the earlier issues they're um you know thicker pages but less pages and then covers that sort of like are a bit too sort of like firm and you know when we go into our printers we're, we're going in with different things so over the course of the year we've had to refine just different elements of it but rather than like a big challenge to overcome it's been like you know getting the magazine right getting the the cover to something that we want getting the the quality of things there you know the right number of pages and content to sort of like do what we want it to do you know the the website social media and stuff like that we're, we're not like got you know a, a big social team or anything like that like compared or well not competitors but you know big brands and stuff that would would occupy that space would have so it's all just been sort of like a, a bit of a learning curve like we're, we're all reptile focused so the rest of it well reptile and i guess you know i, I have a bit of journalism experience obviously scott um brilliant with graphic design and stuff like that so we, we've got our skills but in terms of getting the magazine right, building the website and working with the mail house and the printers and stuff like that to make sure that everything runs smoothly, you know, responding to customer queries and stuff like that. You know, we, we're quite busy all the time. So we've had yeah. to, you know, impl- implement different measures to, to make sure that people are getting responded to and that you know rather than just one one of us jumping on it straight away, that, that it goes through the correct channels and Things like this, they're all like little challenges that they've took a bit of time to yeah. just refine the formula more than anything, you know. So what's been your more, you know, your favourite topic to work on so far? Uh, so the Mantella one was was a good one. I did really like that. But Komodo Dragons with Matt Cook, I know I've, I've co- covered that as well. But obviously visiting Chester and, and going into the enclosure and filming and, you know, that was incredible. The 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 bearded dragon piece again i feel like that 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 had a lot of good feedback um, yeah that, that was awesome that yeah was, <laughs> i did feel like that was when i was listening to dr jonathan speaking he was just brilliant and that was that was fun to work on and it was stuff that i didn't know uh, you know a lot of experts in the field probably didn't quite understand its full extent yeah there's a piece on invasive species as well so my mate gabriel that i met in Australia that was like a good sort of catalyst on on the the route that I took I guess with with writing about animals he did his master's thesis on the invasiveness of cane toads and I'd also spoken to Jim Foster at Amphibian and Reptile Conservation on bullfrogs so the, together it was just like it worked really well um 
And I enjoyed that because it was it just felt like a bit of a milestone, I guess, from sitting there talking about all the different lizards and stuff that we could find in Australia to like actually having like a feature yeah. put together. It was that was quite nice. That's, that sounds fascinating because when you think of Australia, they're very strict on what you can't even coming down to foods and stuff, what you can take into their country because mm. they, they have a they have that massive cane toad mm. problem, yeah. don't they? So because we don't. As us as an island, we don't really see like the difficulties. They really take it to the next level with like what you can and can't yeah. take into the country. And it's really strange. Like, very... like there's if you if you cross yeah. like a state border, th th there's nothing there. It's just a road. But every now and again, they'll have a, like border patrol or, or something sitting there. And if you take a like an, an apple through with you in your car, you can get fined like loads of money. But if you chop that apple up yeah. before they find it then you're you're free to go because it's classed as processed foods like it's, it's really it's really so i think a lot of it i don't think they would go to that extent to prosecute you if you just had an apple they just probably let take a bite of it and it's processed. But, yeah anyone that's taken food or especially fruits and stuff that might have like insects and stuff in them then they, they, they're really strict yeah. on it but the cane toe problem is massive like they were they're, they're everywhere like and they even speaking to local people out there they they said you know I used to get loads of taipans I, I was out building like a campsite with one of the locals up in the northern the top end so like quite remote and i was sort of saying you know what animals you get out here is like yeah I used to used to have loads of taipans and king browns that was it I used to have loads of mulgas and king browns and in the space of like 10 or 15 years since because the cane toads are slowly moving over from from queensland across it's like since the cane toads got here i haven't seen one and i used to see them every other day and it's yeah. it, it's having a massive effect like all the goannas and stuff like that they um he said yeah I just don't see any of them anymore and you know hopefully they get into the to the bottom of it and i was speaking to um at Shuttleworth College, Bedfordshire, they've got a massive like zoological education centre. So it's a big biome, like got free roaming like, iguanas and like, turtles and yeah, yeah, loads. They've got alligators there. They've got two, two alligators there. Yeah, what? yeah. So it is. Yeah, they've got two hundred and ten <laughs> different species, just over two hundred species of reptile and amphibian, and they've got koatis and lemurs and stuff like that. It's, yeah, it's it's crazy, but they're doing some work with cane toads. So they're working with students in Australia on geographically mapping where the cane toads are going to then stop their breeding and stuff. And there, there was another another news article that I'd seen a few weeks ago where there there's like an, a bit of equipment that collects their spawn and that should hopefully have a bit of a dent in it but people are working really really hard for the sake of you know just introducing them to eat beetles but that in itself was like a really interesting thing and uh, i didn't realize that they actually come from quite high altitudes where it's it's um really like dry in south america whereas everyone thought they were a tropical species introduce them to queensland they're not going to go any further actually they, yeah, yeah, they had this hidden key. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, let's go. So you see cane toads like right. literally out in the uh, pretty much the desert. You know, it's it's crazy. I think you don't, like until you hear a story of it, you don't actually realise what a devast devastated impact invasive species can actually have yeah. though. Like, mm. because yeah. it's like um, with the grey squirrel thing, that's the closest thing I can just think of right now. When they <laughs> came over here, 
And obviously they started passing that, it was it a parasite or something, onto the red squirrel and it started dwindling their numbers massively. You don't understand that within, what, a matter of years, you can annihilate other species just by this one yeah. thing went into somewhere. And it's a scary concept, really, when you think about it. And I don't blame them for being so strict. Yeah. Because yeah. what's keeping their biodiversity and their country ticking is essentially being eradicated by something that shouldn't even be there to begin yeah. with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Australia, it's, um, I, I think it's something like 90% of the species there, like endemic to Australia. So that in itself it makes, it makes it more fragile. Whereas you look at the UK and we've already destroyed, I think, 70% of our natural spaces. So we're almost like we're, we're yeah. too well we're not too far gone but we're pretty far down the track to then turn anything yeah. round. but yeah it, it was interesting and interesting to just speak to people about that because it was something that i i knew as a kid and the old cane toes in australia they're killing the wildlife that was like a, my, my understanding of it but to get stuck into it it was um yeah it was interesting but it sounds silly but i think that what introduced me to that was the symptoms <laughs> like before i was like deeply into it because they had an episode and they went to yeah. australia didn't they and the yeah. cane toads there were a huge issue on that yeah. i think even but weirdly something as small as that hits a point in kids because necessarily as a kid you wouldn't think of anything like that but when you're seeing it in a cartoon brought to you like that and then as you get older it sits in place it's like hmm do you know what i mean mm. but yeah it's it's, it's scary really when you think about like when you see people oh I just throw like mealies out there or me locusts out and it's like when you see like the impact of if they are able to survive a bit <laughs> oh. for the rest of the species scary mm. scary mm. what's your best memory from interviews that you've had so uh I keep going back to Chester Zoo we've been to some, some brilliant zoos so I don't want to show any favoritism but we went to <laughs> film their Tuatara breeding facility and they were like I, I didn't really know 100% how it was going to go I know big sort of zoos and stuff like that they usually keep their cards quite close to their chest but they said yeah come come uh, back behind here and you know we'll film behind the scenes and stuff and I'd never seen a Tuatara in my life so to see the only ones I think in Europe or the and the only babies that had been bred outside of New Zealand was like <laughs> I just I thought it was brilliant like something that I've always wanted to see and then yeah like last week went to Barcelona to film Sitticus who they're like a big breeding facility for um like African grey parrots and their their outlook on creating on parrot nutrition and you know using a pelleted diet and that sort of thing was really genuinely inspiring like you know I'm not necessarily a parrot guy myself but um you know I grew grew up around parrots and and that in itself was yeah great to hear from them and see what they're doing so that that was quite an interesting interview and it was a little bit of sun in the middle of October so (laughs) I can't complain. Very well enjoyed. Chester Zoo's got a lot to offer, especially with conservation efforts and things like that. So, yeah, that's awesome. What kind of changes are you hoping to see moving forward in captivity? I guess that sharing of knowledge more than anything. I genuinely think that we're moving towards this model where people who keep reptiles consider themselves, you know, exotics keepers. You know, they want to do well by their animals. It's not... And I think they want to be sharing stuff. When you see some of these vloggers and young, the guys at Celtic Reptile Amphibian, they you know, doing brilliant, getting yeah, that sort of exposure and stuff. Like, they, they there's, I feel like there's, there's a really optimistic sort of like air in the hobby. Um, 
And I, I think, yeah, if people can just share that information, you know, if they're working with the species and they're doing really well by it, tell everyone, you know, to, we, we've got the facilities in front of us now. We used to have obviously forums and stuff back in the day. Now we've got social media. Now there's like vlogging and stuff. And I, you know, I know we mentioned American style of sort of vlogging and stuff. It can be quite sensationalized. It can be problematic in, in some respects, but if more people want to go out and, and share what they're learning and speak to each other and, and just keep that sort of cycle going, I genuinely think we, we're going to, yeah, we're going to advance husbandry massively. The product development side yeah. of things is going crazy. There's a lot of incredible brands that are doing brilliant things. And yeah, I think it's just a matter of people doing, you know, working with these products, recording what they're seeing. You know, I know things like solar meters and stuff like that they are quite expensive but they've absolutely got their place to yeah that's it you know you if you can tell yourself immediately right i'm doing that perfectly you know we that that was never an option back in the day like you know it's still expensive for somebody who's only got one one pet or you know and i get that but maybe even if there was some kind of service of sort of borrowing a solar meter or, or whatever it is mm, and writing down, yeah. you know, your, your thermo gradients and, and stuff like that. Like while people are keeping a, a data log of what they're doing and then over a period of time, they can see see the advancements that are happening, even species that have been kept for a long time as well. You know, I, we, I spoke to uh, Rebecca Ellis, a, a leopard gecko YouTube um, yeah, yeah. She, uh, yeah, we like her YouTube. It's, yeah. it's really important. Yeah, yeah, she's she's and she's dedicated to leopard geckos. You know, that one species that so many people will say, oh, well, you know, been doing it for years. And, and actually having that platform where she's there you going in depth about this is what I do and this is how to do it. And it, it's so beneficial because that's one of the most popular species. So while you've got somebody who's really leading that conversation, it means that people start their hobby well, you know? And I, I think that's yeah. a good thing. I think going forward, yes, you know, your UV and your naturalistic setups and all this, but I think people know that. I think the the, the bottom line is share that knowledge, tell people, you know, how you're doing things and, and what you're doing and, and eventually, yeah, we'll all we'll all benefit from it. Definitely because back in the day it was literally you got a dragon, it needs a 10 or 12% UV. There was no, well, it needs to be this, this, don't you need this UVI? Yeah. But now, obviously, solar meters, more and more people are getting them. I've seen you are, like, we spent hours perfectly putting oh. our bark and stuff for our I, dragons so I they had the right that. gradients and UVI because it comes to light that. It's obviously, it's more it's more damaging having a high UVI that they're constantly in access to. Yeah. So it's just as yeah. on the same par as not having uh, UV at all because you're doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So I find what I find the best about solar meters, and this goes for even newer keepers if they can afford to get one, is when you rip out all the vivariums to clean them and disinfect them, you're able to then use your solar meter when you're putting everything back in again, you know, so that everything's perfect and in in the right distance and capacity. So I find that the, one of the best things about having a solar meter, um, that you know that when you you know have to take everything out you can put it back in really well yeah. and i think that's like good fun to be honest like building yeah. these boat is good mm-hmm. fun like that that's why yeah. i sort of think we even with bearded dragons as in that piece we sort of talk about how they're actually quite arboreal they're sitting trees for a long time oh, yeah. like yeah if people had that extra space and went you know what i'm gonna get a really big enclosure 
And then, but they had the solar meter, so they maybe go for a slightly higher wattage, you know, bulbs, and, and they have a high, slightly warmer spot because they, they need to because it's a bigger enclosure. That equips you to be able to say, right, they can go here and they can reach, you know, hit that level of UV, or they could go here and it will be, you know, this temperature. Yeah. That, that in itself, I think, is, yeah, is a good part of the hobby. Like, I, I think that's yeah, yeah. good fun. It's something to do, isn't it? You know? it, it is, it's, a, it's, it's a huge advancement, really, compared to what we had in the past. And what's quite cool is, you know, the enrichment side of things. So I've worked quite a lot with Amphibipod, which is obviously one of our sponsors, with the 3D printing. With, you know, like lots of different ideas to bring enrichment out, that kind of thing. I've, I've sent him an idea recently. It was basically the idea was to try and provide areas in the vivarium that you could put, you know, say your your rocket or your kale into that particular product and the dragon would have to find it and eat it from those locations, yeah. you know, just like, you yeah. know, like in a bit of enrichment instead of just putting the salad in a dish every day. Yeah. And the dragon goes to it. It was a the idea was they had to sort of work for it a little bit, which they would in the wild, you know, when that when they're out sourcing sourcing the um, the greens. Yeah. So I'm hoping eventually that can be released. Yeah. It's just I've not had much chance to work on it. I also spoke to Danielle from Herptile Hammocks. Right. She she creates a small circular hanging piece from vines that she knits together. And I asked her, would she create, you know, a larger one? Because that's also got potential for enrichment. You know, if you hang it from your ceiling in a dragon viv and it's big enough, they can yeah. jump into that yeah. and, and move around. So the, yeah. there's just so many options now, you know, to enrich enrich the lives and stuff. So that's something I've been working on, which would be quite exciting eventually when it comes into fruition, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Like all them products and stuff. And it's then that idea of, you know, the experts have been been working with these animals for a long time. They go, you know, I've, I've got a brilliant idea. Let's share it. You know, let's get a company to, to put it together. And yeah, that then everyone benefits when they've got that opportunity. It's cool. Because enrichment is a huge part of these like you come across a lot of issues in species because they're overfed they don't move around a lot they've not got like with the dragons like unless they're going into brumation 99% of the time they're up on bark or on, on, on wood just chilling and it that needs to be incorporated because when obesity starts to kick in that's when you get health issues and then you get the problems so if we can kind of nip that in the bud mm. but have the the right indexes everywhere because obviously you don't want you want them to climb, but you don't want them too close to that UV and to that heat source where they're going to hurt themselves. So it all knits in, and it is something that should be shared. Because if I, you might not have a solar meter, but if I say to you, keep it 16 centimetres away, and this is the UVI you're going to get with the same brand and type UV, mm -hmm. you're going to be able to implement it until you are able to get yourself a solar meter and yeah. play around a lot more. Because obviously, with my dragons, I'll use a 6% in the basking area because I've got it more built yeah. up. It's safer for my dragon, and they will spend at certain points of the day and it's usually regimented they'll go up there at those certain points and they'll spend an hour there before they go off and they'll go and eat or they'll go mm. and dig and whatever so it is it's it, it is that sharing as you said that is pushing everyone forward because equipment can be expensive and if they can't afford it you're getting that knowledge yeah. to be able to use the same brand and yeah. and stuff as that works for someone else yeah and like you say like you you know you're observing these natural behaviors like instantly like by by you're putting a bit of thought into it and using different products and stuff you, you can see the result people can see the results like i see um 
like the reptiles and research channel and 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 obviously jtb um and stuff like that where they're saying look you know i've implemented this product I, i've put you know a, a tool hide or a hide at the top of my king snake vivarium or whatever and look at them utilizing it like they, they they enjoy it or i've put some uvb in and they've been out basking or they're cryptic basking here where they've got one coil out and you know as soon as people start seeing you know what yeah that, that that's working then then yeah with the whole hobby just yeah. develops you know it is because I, I noticed like when I did use um, a longer UV and it was more spread out across the viv, they weren't as active, mm. which is really weird, me dragons. But as soon as I I read on reptile light and actually you can be, it can be done with a smaller percentage, give them a higher basking area, drop it because it's a T5, which is obviously stronger output, isn't it? You can make it smaller, just have it one specific area. That dragon was utilising more of the space than when the UV was just in the entire way. And then that's when you see more of their natural behaviours. Yeah. And it's more fascinating and fun then as well than this animal that just sits there. Cause like especially when you're trying to introduce kids to the hobby, it's if it's something that just sits there and isn't very interactive, they lose interest faster. But when you can say, let's spend an hour watching what this animal yeah. does, you're opening up a whole world for them, yeah, aren't 100%. you? You know, so I can sit and watch my dart frogs for like hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're really cool you know like even different species are obviously different these are tinctorialists so they're obviously very active all the time but that's it you know but people say oh can you hold them no well why do you want a frog well just watch them for a minute you know (laughs) it's like me with my day geckos i get asked that all the time like why do you want an animal that you can't interact with like touch and stuff you can still interact with them it's just you're not grabbing them or you know it's not that type of interaction there is handling isn't always the only way to to have an interaction with your your animal yeah especially if you've got like a massive exoterra and it's all set up beautifully you could like it's like a centerpiece i've said it before like a centerpiece in your house as well because that's something you put hours and a lot of money into that you can get that enjoyment back from. So it's not just like, say, for example, on a night out, you throw money, you have a bit of a good time. You feel like awful the next day. With your verb, you're throwing money at it, but day after day after day, you're getting that enjoyment back. And mm. if you move something inside that viv, you're watching that animal then re-explore. Yeah. And this is like a whole new world to them. So you're seeing those things come out. That it's, It is there's so much and so much scope in the hobby. It's crazy from what oh, it used yeah. to be. Crazy. Like, seeing their little characters pop out yeah. and stuff. The guys at um, Reptile Systems have got like an, an animal room where they uh, test a lot of products and stuff. And they've got this massive vivarium for like a pink tongue skink, like a really tiny thing. But the natural behaviours that you witness from that, like that you wouldn't, people keeping them synonymously as blue tongues and stuff, it's the wrong way to do it. But this massive enclosure. And again, you can sit and watch sit and watch it for hours and, and then them sort of big environments and uv in different locations and strategically you know place branches and that kind of thing it just makes your experience more enjoyable as well and i think that's what people need to start like clocking on to because as soon as soon as they've seen it in the flesh and as they see what that can do i think you just you enjoy your own hobby more you know as well as the animal's welfare as a closer question yeah. do you know whether you'll be attending the bhs meeting in march at drayton manor oh yeah i've seen that conference is a weekend conference i imagine we will do yeah it's it's not something that i've spoken to anyone about but it really isn't it wouldn't be difficult for us to go yeah and it'll be an interesting one i think it'll be really cool yeah we're we're hoping to go either the saturday or the sunday yeah Um, 
we can't stay because we've got children. So. <laughs> oh, fair <laughs> enough. Well, I'll, um, yeah, we need to have that conversation, but I'm sure, yeah, one of us would be, well, it, it would be me. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> Acting like you don't know who's going to be the one to go. <laughs> yeah, well, there might be a couple of us go as well, actually. I don't know. But, yeah, I'm sure I'll be there. Awesome. So that concludes this week's episode of the Herpin Hour podcast with Exotics Keeper magazine. Thank you to Tom for joining us. It's been awesome to hear how the magazine works as it's been quite a big influence in the reptile community, you know, since it started. So please be sure to go and check out Exotics Keeper magazine and subscribe for all the latest information within the Herpin community. And thank you very much again yeah. for no, joining. No, thank you for having Honestly, me. It's been, it's been a pleasure. It's been it's awesome. Been yeah, we've loved it. Absolutely loved it. <laughs> cool. All right, I'll see you later. Thank you. Take care. Take Bye. care. Bye. 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 Bye.